Welcome to this BJSM podcast and Irene Davis is with us and she also has a podcast with us on the foot core but this one's about patellofemoral pain and Irene's a professor at the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at uh, Harvard Medical School. She also leads the Spalding National Running Centre at Harvard Medical School and it's great to chat to Irene. Welcome to the podcast, Irene. Thanks, Kyram. And you, Eric Vitro, Kay Crosley, Chris Powers have been instrumental in moving patellofemoral um, field forward, along with Jenny McConnell, of course, and others. But you convened in Vancouver in 2013, and we have a consensus statement from that group. But today we want to have a very clinically focused chat and talk about how you manage patellofemoral pain in your clinic, because you're very active clinically as well. And many listeners would love to hear how Irene Davis does it. So let's begin with a typical, fairly straightforward case where someone has had only, say, three or four weeks of patellofemoral pain from running. They, they come in complaining of anterior knee pain, maybe a 17-year-old woman, and you have a chance to see someone in this stage. What, what's your approach, briefly? Well, you know, my approach actually is pretty much the same no matter who I'm looking at. And, and I'm really interested in trying to understand what is the underlying cause of the patellofemoral pain. Um, so, you know, we, we will take a, a, a fairly detailed injury history um, to find out, you know, the, the chronicity, if it's, it has it just been three or four weeks, which is what you're saying, so three to four weeks. Um, and then we're going to take a look at their structure to see whether there's some predisposing factors that might contribute to increasing their risk for this patellofemoral pain. I mean, in, in the case of this individual that has just had it once and has had it for three to four weeks, sometimes it's just a case of doing too much too quick too soon. Um, uh, that overtraining is probably one of the primary causes of running-related injuries, especially these first acute injuries. Um, so certainly you want to be able to get that kind of information from the, the history. Now, if it looks as though this individual has been very reasonable in the way that they've increased their mileage and doesn't seem like it's overtraining, you want to dig a little deeper. And, and, and it could be either their structure, um, their mechanics, or some combination of those. So the structural assessment gives you a sense of sort of what they're, they're uh, starting with. Um, and, you know, we'd be looking at things like their hip strength. We'd look at their, their quad strength. We'd look at their, um, you know, general strength of their lower extremities. Um, we'd look at their foot um, and look at their posterior tib and some of their arch musculature and, and seeing just, you know, when they stand, do they, are they able to hold a good arch? So just looking at overall structure, alignment, and strength. Um, in terms of uh, structure that may predispose them to anterior knee pain, especially if it's a female, uh, femoral antiversion is an important one to look at because it has a, it, ha it has a tendency to predispose someone to excessive internal rotation when they run. Uh, it's not to say that you can't uh, get the person out of that position, but their tendency, their comfortable position is to function in internal rotation. <coughs> Excuse me. It's important to know how much external rotation they have available so that you can see whether they're able to get themselves out of that alignment and into a better alignment. Um, the problem with that excessive internal rotation is that as the femur internally rotates, the patella can end up being seated improperly and have more loading on the lateral facet 
uh, against the lateral femoral condyle. And that's probably the most common deviation that we see um, in patellofemoral pain. Um, and I probably should have started with the sort of the central hypothesis of patellofemoral pain uh, from a mechanical standpoint is that you have an abnormal force distribution underneath the patella. There are other types of pain, and I can talk about those. But um, so, for example, if the, pate- the patella actually has, has been described as having seven facets. So there's a, there's a medial ridge that, that gives you your medial and your lateral facet, and then each of the medial and lateral have two f- minor horizontal ridges that divide it up into a superior, middle, and inferior facet on the medial and lateral side, and then you have the odd facet. And so those seven facets have to you know be in a certain location that's got to, to ride uh, along that femoral groove in a certain way and if it doesn't you can you can see how quickly you can get abnormal force distribution underneath the patella and that's the central hypothesis between b- behind trying to better align the lower extremity so that the patella rides more normally in that femoral groove now there are other kinds of patellofemoral pain that you need to be able to rule out with this individual. So you may want to look for um, an irritated fat pad. Uh, the fat pad lies um, sort of at the distal part of the patella, between the patella and the femur. And if someone's got a high-riding patella, you actually can see the fat pad sort of stick out. There's something called a camel sign um, because you have two humps. You have the hump of the patella and then you have the hump of the of the fat pad. And if the patella is flexed a little bit, you can see that it will pinch that fat pad. So fat pad syndrome is certainly something that can cause patellofemoral pain. You can certainly have um, a lateral retinacular nerve pain, um, but that tends to be more nerve-related. So it might be a little bit radiating, maybe burning, um, the kinds of signs and symptoms that you have with, with, neural, with nerve pain. Um, and then there, there are certainly others. You can have the lateral retinaculum um, that, that actually comes off the IT band. That can be very tight, and that can cause some irritation. So there are a number of other kinds of things that can be causing pain in that area. Certainly, IT band can cause pain in the knee, but it's usually pretty clear if you do a differential diagnosis. That pain is very specific to the distribution of the IT band, um, which actually has an insertion into the lateral retinaculum, into the Gerdes tubercle, which is on the tibia, but also has an attachment on the femur itself. So, But they're primarily lateral attachments, and it's usually pretty easy to be able to differentiate between IT band and patellofemoral pain. Yes. Um, so I I think that once you've sort of sorted that out, and let's let's just say we're going to go on the assumption that this uh, 17-year-old female has some femoral antiversion, has some internal rotation, um, and when I looked at her strength, she was weak in her abductors and her external rotators, um, and she also had really weak feet. Just a quick one. The best test for hip strength and quad strength and foot strength? Okay, so the best, I don't know that there's a best uh, hip strength test because you almost would like to do a hip strength test in standing, um, which is the the way that we're functioning. We typically do our hip strength tests um, for, for example, abduction and side lying. Um, we do our hip, our hip uh, external rotation strength in sitting, although it can also be done prone. 
um, with the hip extended. Um, but, you know, those are isometric strength tests and don't give you a good sense of endurance. Um, but I think that the isometric strength does relate to the fatigability of the muscle um, and does give you a sense of how uh, durable that, 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 that strength is or how, how really how strong the person is in that muscle. But it's not functional. It's not a functional test. Um, some functional tests that you could perform to see how well that muscle is performing is, are things like a single leg squat, and looking at how the person does that, whether their hip is dropping on the contralateral side, suggesting that the hip abductor is not doing its job, or whether the the femur is really uh, moving in medially, which also suggests that the hip abductor is not doing its job. And you can also look at how that femur spins in the transverse plane. Are they internally rotating, which again suggests that the glute max is not doing its job. Um, so I think there's, you know, a functional part of the strength that you should look at, and then there's this, just the isometric test. Um, I know that people have tried to do it in standing using some of the dynamometers that, um, uh, you know, are attached to machines. There's different ones that can be used. Uh, but it's difficult to stabilize in standing. So I just don't think we have – we've discussed this at the Patel-Femoral Research Retreat, and we just don't – all the consensus is we don't have a very good way to test – that strength. Um, you know, the quad strength is typically just do a manual muscle test or you can do it with a handheld dynamometer. But you have the same issues with any of these strength tests um, that are done non-weight bearing. Um, the foot strength test, which I described in a previous podcast with you, I think is looking, and this is a little bit more functional, is, is to actually see how well someone can make a dome of their arch. And the way that they you do that is you're standing you press your toes down and you raise your arch up and you see how well someone can actually raise and maintain a nice domed arch. And then you actually have them sort of hop on that foot or either bilaterally or unilaterally. And again, that's a little more functional um, in terms of a strength measure, although you don't get a number like you would on a dynamometer. Um, so those are some ways to, to measure the strength of the hip, the quad, and the foot. So let's swoop on to treatment, this straightforward case, before we get on to a more difficult case, but we know some of these principles are going to cross over. Right. So, um, so the, you know, we, I'd be screening the person for these kinds of things. And, you know, it could very likely be that this individual just simply has done too much, or it could be that they just simply have, um, you know, got some weakness in their core musculature. But one of the things that we know, and we have published a paper and others have as well, that strengthening alone will not change the mechanics. So if you get them on the treadmill and you see that, yes, indeed, they are adducting and they are internally rotating, so I need to strengthen the abductors and external rotators. If you think that that's going to change your mechanics, you're actually going to fool yourself. You're fooling yourself um, because strengthening alone doesn't seem, at least of the hip, we've been able to demonstrate, does not change hip mechanics at all. So you have to incorporate um, a component of retraining into the person's gait pattern. Now, if I get them on the treadmill and they don't look like, you know, they're they're they've got abnormal mechanics, they look like they're landing, you know, well and they look like they're aligned well, 
then I'm going to go back to the theory that perhaps they did a little bit too much too quick too soon. You know, you, again, you want to fortify the system. Um, and strengthening is always a part of what we do because we bring people in and run them on the treadmill. And often we're running them in a non-fatigue state. So they may look actually pretty good. But when you get somebody into a fatigue state, we know that as we all fatigue, our mechanics start to break down. We tend to pronate more. We tend to hit harder. Our hips tend to come in more. Um, and so you know, sometimes it's a matter of you know the person not being able to maintain mechanics for over the long haul. And a lot of times people will say, you know, I get the pain at mile six. It's not mile one or two. So I think the strengthening part of that is still really very important. Now, Irene, really because of your international reputation, you rarely see those sort of patients because patients come to you when they've seen three or four other practitioners, treatments failed, they've had a long history of pain. How do you approach those patients? Yeah, they're my most fun patients um, because they're always challenging and you always have to do problem solving with them because, you know, they clearly have been through three or four uh, courses of physical therapy scene, you know, podiatrist, uh, a chiropractor, sports physician, um, you know, so they, they've been around the block and nothing has worked. Um, and I think the reason those people that you see clearly have an underlying problem that hasn't been addressed. The fact that they're getting these recurrent injuries and they've been through interventions tells me that something's not being addressed. And so with those people, my antenna goes up immediately towards the mechanics. Um, although we will do the same kind of assessment, we clearly take a very detailed history, sometimes 20 minutes long. I go back to their, um, if, if someone's 40, 50 years old, I'll go back to their high school and ask them, you know, what kind of injuries did you have in high school? And a lot of times you'll see a pattern that has started back in high school. Um, or they had an injury in high school or in college that has sort of precipitated the whole process. So it's helpful to go back and sort of walk through their running history with them from when they started running. Um, so we do that. And then we would do a complete postural assessment. We do a complete lower quarter assessment. Um, and depending on the problem, if it is anterior knee pain, we're going to take a closer look at the patella. Um, if someone's coming in with foot-related pain, we might not look so closely at the patella. But with patella femoral pain, I'm going to look at, you know, where the, the positioning of the patella is, the high-riding patella, because it's important to understand that. You know, we know in high-riding patellas that they don't uh, seat as well into the femoral groove. It takes them longer to seat into the femoral groove. They're more unstable. And we're not surgeons, so there's nothing I can do about that uh, short of um, strengthening the muscles around that knee to try to stabilize it. But you can also have low-riding patellas that are actually um, engaging in the, in the groove too soon. But I, I, I tend to see, if I see one or the other, it's more of the high-riding or patella alta. You also want to see whether the patella is tilted. Um, and, you know, there have been some studies in literature that say we're not very good or reliable at measuring the tilt of the patella and the, and the translation. But I would argue if someone's really tilted, I think if it's a little bit, we may not be very reliable. But if they're really tilted, you can see it. It's pretty clear. Or if they're really laterally deviated where you can really feel that medial femoral condyle, you can, you can feel that. And you may see a difference from side to side or it may be bilateral. So understanding the the, uh, the um, environment around the patella, our, our um, patellofemoral research retreat basically focuses on sort of different causes of the patella from 
local, which means the local environment, the shape of the patella, the position of the patella, and the femur and the shape of the femur and all of the things that are right around the local patellofemoral joint. But then we also focus on proximal and distal factors, so factors that are related to the hip and factors that are related to the foot. And so that's really, I think, how you should do your assessment. You need to look locally, but then you have to look further up and further down because this is a closed kinetic chain. And motion at one joint is going to affect motion at the other joints. So, you know, we'll move up to the femur and we'll start to look at, you know, the the, the strength of the femur as I did in our previous case and the strength of the foot um, and look at their overall structure. Even if there's structure I can't do anything about, I want to understand what are the factors contributing. I can't change her femoral antiversion, but it helps me to understand um, maybe why they're biased towards internal rotation. So after a structural assessment, then we pop them up on the treadmill and we videotape them. And it doesn't take a half a million dollar motion analysis lab. You need All you need is a camera that will go even 60 frames per second and a, a treadmill. That's really all you need and a way to play it back in slow motion. And so basically we do um, a complete analysis all around the treadmill from the front. And then the front we video the foot and then we pull the knee the hip, and then we pull back and look at the whole lower extremity. Then we go to the side, and we look at the foot, then the knee, the hip, and then the whole lower extremity, and we go to the back and do the same thing, and then around the side. And we get two or three foot strikes per you know view that we're looking at. So we do two or three foot strikes when we're looking at the foot alone, and then two or three foot strikes when they're looking at the knee. So you have a number of foot strikes that you can look at um, as you're starting to analyze that person's data. And then we... Then, then our job is to put all of that information together, uh, looking at um, their structure, their mechanics, and also their dosage. You know, the dosage is you know, how, how they're training. And we come up with what I call a clinical hypothesis, which is very similar to what we do in research. We hypothesize. It's not enough, for, in my opinion, to say someone's got anterior knee pain because I have no idea how to treat them. Um, and in particular, in these chronic cases, uh, it's important to be able to focus in on something that maybe something different than it's been focused on because obviously they haven't had success. I think it's really what you need to say is that this person has anterior knee pain because structurally they've got this, say, febrile antiversion, so they're biased towards internal rotation. They're weak in the muscles that control that, and the motor control pattern is one that facilitates adduction and internal rotation, which is going to change the orientation of the patella with respect to the femur, increase contact stresses. Now I have a treatment plan because I've got to get them externally rotated. I've got to get the strength that they need to be able to do that. Um, And I need to be able to, um, you know, uh, train them in that pattern so that they can run and maintain that well-aligned lower extremity. Uh, Our focus always is soft, well-aligned landings. So in a previous podcast with uh, you, I talked about you know landing on the ball of the foot. I believe that that is the way that we are designed to run. If you look at individuals who've never put shoes on, that's how they run. If you watch your children run, that's how they run before they start wearing shoes. Um, I just don't think we have enough padding on our heel to attenuate the loads of running on most surfaces. Maybe on soft surfaces you can. And it hurts. So if it hurts, to me it's proof positive that you weren't meant to do that. So that's the other part of our treatment. So we want to align them well, and then we also want them to land softly. 
And that combination, I believe, of soft, well-aligned landings is going to help to reduce their risk of recurrent injuries, which overall is about 46%. So up to 79% of runners get injured in a given year, and of them, 46% will be re-injuries. The, the strongest predictor of a running injury is a previous running injury. And I just honestly believe that if we were evolved to run, which I believe we did, I think running was part of our survival, then we should not be getting injured at a rate of up to 79% per year. Uh, to me, it suggests we're doing something wrong and, um, uh, you know, don't have time now. Maybe sometime we can talk about sort of the evolution of footwear from back in the 20s uh, all the way out to here because I think it's it's very telling um, in terms of how it's changed the way we run and, and the injuries that we're having. So it's back to the patellofemoral patient. We want to try to get them to have very soft landings so off their heels so they're not getting those big impacts um, and get them really well aligned. And we do that through a very prescribed gait retraining program. We've actually published this in the literature um, it's typically about 8 to 12 sessions, and we slowly ramp up their mileage, and we slowly remove the feedback so that they're learning how to um, to change their gait on their own. They're not going to have a mirror in front of them when they're out running out in the field, so they've got to be able to do that without that feedback. So we start to fade it slowly so that by the end of the sessions, they're able to run without the feedback. And then we feel like they're beginning to own that new pattern. They still have their old pattern, but we're trying to develop a new one and reinforce it. And so that, to me, is what the approach is when someone comes to us and they've had this chronic problem. You know, we've got people who've had patellofemoral pain for one of our studies, the average time of patellofemoral pain was 75 months. So I just think that those are the cases that really need to be dealt with in terms of addressing their mechanics. That's a lovely walk through that, Irene. Thanks so much. That's actually brilliant um, expose. So don't need to add to that. That's just brilliant. People who didn't listen to our other podcast, role for orthotics in this case? Um, so again, my feeling is that um, I, my approach, and not everybody takes this approach, rather than give support to a system um, that they're going to become dependent on, and the more support you give the system, the less the system has to work, my approach is I want to fortify the system, and then then they don't have to depend on any kind of additional support. And again, my comments relate to people who have intact neuromuscular systems that can get stronger. I'm not talking about people who are paralyzed or don't have normal ability to activate their muscles. If you have normal ability to activate your muscles and you put something in the shoe or on the knee that supports them, then they're not going to have to use those those muscles. Now, are there cases that you know, that just are sort of fall outside of that range and just can't seem to, to to develop the strength to be able to support their feet or their their lower extremity? Probably, yeah. There's always those cases. But my point is that I believe the majority of people who are running out there in orthotics probably don't need them long term. Fantastic, Irene. A couple of quick ones to finish. Older patient with arthritis where you're suspecting an arthritis component. Again, we don't have to solve this one, but what are the things the clinician should be thinking about for that particular scenario? Yeah, so now we're talking about a different situation. So we've got someone who's got arthritis, um, and, and so now that we don't have a normal environment between the patella and the femur, it's gotten to the point now where the cartilage is worn down, they're going to have pain because the cartilage is not 
innervated, but the bone is highly innervated. And I think in those cases, you've got to be able to reduce the loads for that person and try to keep them out of activities that are impact-related. I have had runners, believe it or not, who have tibiofemoral arthritis and have on their own, um, one I'm thinking about in particular, changed to a forefoot strike pattern and was able to continue running because they they eliminated their impact force, the, the impact part of the force. So I've known people who have been able to run through arthritis by adopting a forefoot strike pattern. Um, but you've got to be careful. My my mantra is if it hurts, you shouldn't do it. And if you cannot run in a way that doesn't hurt, and arthritis will hurt, um, then you shouldn't do it. You should try to choose an activity that will uh, allow you to be able to stay, remain active, which, of course, is our ultimate goal, um, without further aggravating or further injuring yourself. So if someone wants to try it, if someone came to you and said, I've, I've got patellofemoral arthritis, but I love running, and you know that that's how runners are. They do not want to be told they can't run. And I tell very few people that. There have been a couple of cases. But um, I would work with them and try to adopt a soft landing pattern. Uh, we also have an instrument treadmill, so we can actually give them feedback on their force so they could see it. Not all clinics have that. But honestly, sound is a very good indication of force. So if people have an ability to hear how hard they're landing, that also can give them feedback. But I would try it. And if they're able to run, even if it's just you know three miles three times a week, um, and it's not aggravating their knee, then I would I would go forward with it. And just to be explicit for listeners, we're talking about patellofemoral arthritis in this bit. We're still in patellofemoral pain, and really we're talking yes. about patellofemoral yes. arthritis. Yes. And but again, you know, you're going to have to proceed with caution, and you need to warn the patient that, you know, if you're not able to tolerate this rate of the the loading from running, then you know we're going to have to try to adopt a different kind of activity for you, which, you know, we, I have no problem saying to the person. But I just, I want to give the person a chance. I have been surprised so many times with patients um, that I didn't think, you know, they were going to be able to do something and they can. When you think about the ACL, and I know we're off topic here, but ACL injuries, the reason we went from, you know, 18-month programs to six-month programs is because people weren't listening. They didn't listen to their physicians, and they tried things that they weren't. And we found out that they were able to to do that. They were able to progress more quickly than we thought. So I, I like to listen to my patients. I have learned probably more from my patients than I've ever learned in, in school. And so I'd like to give them the chance. Uh, and then if, if, if it seems as though it's causing them further aggravation, then I, I, clearly pain is our guide. If someone's on the treadmill running in any situation, we don't let them run in pain. We shut them down immediately. Because to me, pain is your body's way of saying, this is too much for this tissue, at least at this moment. Now, sometimes patients fail you know, rehabbing a certain setting, and then they might be contemplating surgery. They might have an MRI suggesting that they've got a small meniscal tear. Um, is there a risk of inappropriate surgery in someone for patellofemoral pain? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. And I think um, that we try to avoid surgery at all costs because the, the sequelae of uh, even arthroscopy can be um, very negative. Um, I think that it's important not to disturb the internal environment if you don't have to. 
Uh, clearly, it's going to be a last resort. And if I had the patient, I would be working on trying to calm the symptoms down, maybe address their mechanics, work on strengthening. I would be doing everything else besides that. Um, ultimately, the decision is going to be between the patient and the surgeon. But as a physical therapy clinician, I'm going to encourage them to not proceed in that way, at least at that time. And we know from the meniscal tears of, of the knee that people can do very well with conservative management um, unless the tear becomes really, really significant. So um, I would just warn people to try everything that they can prior to um, going under the knife. Irene, we're going to leave it there. I really appreciate your time on this Boston morning. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and uh, there's clearly other things we could talk about, but thanks a lot for today. <laughs> Same here. Thank you very much, Karim. It was, uh, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. And you're listening to Irene Davis on patellofemoral pain. There's a lot of BJSM content on patellofemoral pain. It's a focus area for BJSM. And the patellofemoral pain retreat was held in Vancouver in 2013, and you can read about that on BJSM. We'll have other podcasts relating to specific issues relating to this topic Follow BJSM on Twitter at BJSM underscore BMJ and you'll get regular updates of what's happening in sports medicine. Have an active day and thanks for listening.